Well, if you have a Bible with you, and given what's just taken place and what I'm sure is going on, you know, the, the variety of things that I'm sure is going on in, in many of your hearts and minds, and, uh, you know, we, we discussed often what, you know, how does, how does the service look with, with such a, with such a, um, a piece that uh, we've, we've put in here. And we decided that there's, there's uh, really no better way than to, to get into the Word and for the Word of God to be the final thing uh, that, leaves, uh, that enters our mind during this service. And I can't think of a more hopeful passage to be coming to, especially during Christmas. And we, as we find ourselves in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, and the topic, the rapture of the church. Jesus came to this earth as a baby many years ago, but Jesus is coming again. And we find that as the topic of our passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Now, if you've grown up in whether it be this church or a church like this that preaches the Bible, then you've probably been exposed to the Bible's teaching on, on the end times, or eschatology. That's what the word eschatology means, the, the study of the end times. And that's because the Bible does, in fact, teach, a, teach us, uh, it does, in fact, teach us about the future. The Bible does teach us about what's coming next, And about the glorious hope that awaits followers of Jesus. And so actually the next two sections in 1 Thessalonians deal with the end times. It deals with with what happens when Jesus comes back. Now this section in chapter 4 verses 13 through 18 really deals with how the end times relates to followers of Jesus. The next section in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, deals with how the end times relates to those who aren't followers of Jesus. But the next big event on God's calendar that he has revealed to us in his word is what is known as the rapture of the church. An event that could happen any time. Now, I, I grew up uh, learning about the rapture of the church, as I'm sure many of you had, but but. Much of what influenced my understanding of, of the rapture of the church was, was probably a lot less the Bible and not so much scripture. When I thought of the rapture of the church, I thought of a, of a book series that you may be familiar with titled Left Behind. Now, I never read the book, but I did see the movie. And here's how the rapture is portrayed. Former child actor star Kirk Cameron is on an airplane And this is during an evening flight. And he wakes up from sleeping on this evening flight. And there's this elderly lady next to him. And she's she's she looks confused. And and he says, Ma'am, what's wrong? And she goes, Well, I can't find my husband. He's just vanished, disappeared. And soon other people on the flight start waking up on on this airplane, on this flight. And pretty soon a a number of of passengers, as they wake up, they start to realize that, that family, friends, children have just disappeared. Without a trace, without a sound, and, and it's just their clothes are left behind on their seats. And then it, show, it goes back to the, to the ground where on the ground there's, there's pile-ups and there's car accidents and there's all this chaos because people begin to just start to notice that people have just disappeared. And there's no explanation. They've, they've left without a trace. And no one has a clue what happened. 
the rapture in the movie and those books many times is pictured as this, this quiet removal of Christians from the earth. Let's read our passage this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Where Paul says, We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a loud cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then... We who are alive, who are left, interesting that in this passage, those left behind aren't the non-Christians, it's the Christians. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up. And that's where we get our word rapture from. We're going to be raptured up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I hope as we read through that, you realize that the rapture isn't some quiet removal of Christians. But it's loud, it's visible, and it's undeniably supernatural. That doesn't mean believers will know exactly what's going on, but there's going to be an undeniably supernatural tint to this, to their minds when it comes to what's going on. After spending several hours studying this passage, I took a walk uh, in a neighborhood here around the church. And, and during the walk, I tried to, I tried to imagine just what, it, what it's going to look like, what it's going to sound like, what it's going to feel like when the rapture does happen, if the rapture does indeed happen during my lifetime. And as I try to think about it and ex- try to think about what it's, the experience is going to be like, we have to understand that no other event in history can even compare to this. I mean, nothing like this has ever happened. Jesus is going to appear visibly in the sky. And then with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, he is going to call all of his followers to his presence. The dead in Christ will rise from their graves. Now, when Jesus came to the earth on Christmas, it was quiet. I mean, mostly uneventful, except for a few moments here and there with some shepherds. But when Jesus comes back, and he is coming back, it will be loud, it will be visible, and it will be undeniably supernatural. And while it's great to imagine what this supernatural, this extraordinary event is going to be like, we must remember that more so than being an event that's going to happen to us as Christians, it's an event, the rapture is an event that should change how we live day to day. And that's why Paul is explaining this doctrine. The Thessalonians had some deep misunderstandings about the return of Christ, and they were filled with sorrow. That's why Paul opens this section and closes this section with, we, we want you to grieve as those who have hope. And he says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is Paul's intention. This is why he's telling us about these things. 
They were filled with this understanding. Would, would, would their Christian loved ones be at a disadvantage since they missed out on the rapture or the return of Christ? Would they even be included in the resurrection since they died before his return? So again, Paul is laying a proper doctrine. He's laying out proper doctrine, not because they needed more information, just for the sake of information, but because they needed hope and they needed encouragement. And that's what this doctrine provides. Hope and encouragement. Do you need hope and encouragement today? Perhaps you face the recent loss of a loved one in Christ who has gone to heaven. Perhaps you may maybe not facing the recent loss of a loved one. Perhaps you are you're trying you're you're bearing other hardships and struggles. And it's Christmas time, and you're just thinking, I just need some hope. Which is why I've titled this message, The Rapture of the Church, Tidings of Comfort and Joy. God wants us to understand the rapture of the church. And then we're going to look at five keys to understanding the rapture of the church. Five keys to understanding the rapture of the church. Number one, we need to understand the comfort it provides. We can't go anywhere else with this doctrine until we, we get this settled. Paul says he didn't want them to be uninformed. He, he wanted them to know the truth about the return of Christ. That way they can have hope. Really, Paul is saying there's never a time, there's never a time when ignorance is bliss when it comes to the word of God. As a matter of fact, ignorance of God's word or ignorance of theology will often bring more misery, more sorrow, more grief. And so Paul is saying here, listen, I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to be ignorant. That's kind of the idea of the word. About those who have fallen asleep. I love this phrase. Those who have fallen asleep. He didn't want them to be uninformed about those followers of Jesus who had fallen asleep. The word asleep, obviously a euphemism for death. Uh, this is the word Jesus used in John chapter 11. Remember his good friend Lazarus died, and he says Lazarus has fallen asleep. And then his disciples were like, well, if he's asleep, he's going to wake up again. He was going to wake up again, but not in the way they thought. In a parallel passage to this is, is 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 52. Paul says, behold, I tell you a ministry, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. So again, we're not, we may not all die when Jesus returns, but we, are, we, we, are, are, uh, we all are going to be changed. Now I want you to think about this passage and think about what Jesus has done to death. Think about it. Jesus has done something so powerful, so transformative, that when his followers experience it, he calls it sleep. D. Edmund Hebert says that very thing. He says, the risen Lord robbed death of its sting and horror for the believer and has transformed it into sleep for those who are in Christ. It's just amazing that there'd be someone, something so powerful that this man, this God-man Jesus Christ could transform death in such a way where we can now call it sleep. Which is why in ancient times, uh, when the Christians would go and bury another Christian, they began to refer to these burial places as koimateria, or cemeteries, or sleeping places. Because in the eyes of a Christian, when a Christian dies and their body goes into the ground, that's, that's where they're, they're going to a sleeping place. 
I was, uh, I was uh, part of a, a hospice care team. I was a volunteer uh, hospice chaplain uh, in northern Iowa, and, and we were meeting. And, and the social worker, I don't, I don't remember what they were discussing, but he, he looked over at me and somewhat sarcastically, you know, we're just kind of a light moment. He says, hey, uh, you know, Pastor Zach, he says, hey, what's it called when somebody's spirit leaves the body? It's called death. And for the believer... When your spirit leaves your body, your body goes to sleep in the ground. Your spirit, like 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians tells us, 2 Corinthians 5, our spirit, our souls, the real us goes to the presence of the Lord. While our bodies go to sleep in the ground awaiting resurrection. So Paul says we grieve. And he says, I don't want you to grieve as those who have no hope. He's writing to them again because they just have this profound and overwhelming grief. And it's not just the fact that their loved ones had died. That's grief enough. But what added to this is the fact that they thought that somehow their loved ones were at a complete disadvantage. That perhaps their loved ones had missed missed the return of Christ. Now, this was probably, we don't know from this passage, but probably influenced from the paganism of that day. Because there was a great degree of hopelessness in pagan religions concerning death. When it came to the afterlife, for most pagan religions of this day, there really wasn't much to look forward to, if anything at all. The cultural message on death was grim. As a matter of fact, they found an engraving on a tombstone from Thessalonica. And here's what it says. It says, after death, there is no revival. After the grave, no meeting of those who have loved each other on earth. How depressing a message. And so Paul, I love what Paul is doing, because he's using the gospel to confront that culture. He's using the gospel to confront the hopelessness of what that pagan culture is teaching. And so the gospel tells that very culture, and it tells every culture, that there is hope beyond the grave in Jesus Christ. And God has implanted a curiosity for what happens after death in every single person ever to live. Ecclesiastes 3.11, it says God has placed eternity in their hearts. So every single person born has, is at least drawn to some sort of curiosity about what happens after I die. And Jesus says, regardless of what your culture says, the crucified and risen Jesus says there's hope beyond the grave for those who trust him. Now, before we move on to the second one, and we won't spend as much time on some of these, but I do want to give a word on grief, because Paul is not condemning grief. Jesus says in John 16, 6, he says, in this world, you will grieve. Jesus himself wept at the tomb of Lazarus. Paul is saying that as Christians, we grieve as ones who have hope, and it's anchored in the resurrection and second coming of Jesus, which brings me to the second key you need to understand about the rapture. Number one, not only the the comfort it provides, but secondly, the confession it's built on. Look at verse 14, where he says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. There it is. That's the confession this is built on. Jesus died and rose again. Everything we just talked about in verse 13 Everything that follows after 14 in this statement is rooted in the confession that we believe that Jesus died and rose again. This is the fundamental doctrine of the church. 
We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And Paul is saying everything that is going on in this passage, everything he's saying is rooted in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the guarantee of the resurrection of believers. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the guarantee of everything that God says is going to happen in this passage. This is a comfort. This is a comfort. Because it reminds us that when Jesus returns, he will bring all believers with him who died in the Lord. So since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. There it is again. We don't know when the rapture will happen. We don't know when. It could happen any moment. It could happen today. It could happen 100 years from now. We don't know when. But it's getting close. Every day we're closer to the day Jesus returns And while we don't know when the rapture of the church will happen, we do know what has happened that guarantees this will happen. And that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen Savior. And because we know what has happened, we know what will happen, at least in part. That Jesus, because he died and rose again in the past, he will also Give life and bring with him all those who have fallen asleep in Christ. Warren Rearsby says, whether we, whether we Christians live or die, we have nothing to fear because Jesus will come either with us or for us. The sleepers will wake up. The living will be caught up. And Paul is saying all this is to cheer up. The implications of what Paul is saying, Paul is drawing his consolation off the doctrine of the crucified and risen Savior. And I I think just very practical application is that it carries the same force for all believers for us today. You too, in your sorrow and in your grief and in your grieving, can and even ought to, if you're a Christian, draw consolation from the crucified and risen Jesus Consider again that we've already talked about that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, death is called sleep. There's there's a restfulness in that word, isn't there? There's a a peace in that word of, of being asleep. Now, death may have been brought about by violence, disease, torture, persecution, but death itself is for Christians, is sleep. Now again, this isn't soul sleep, if you've heard of that. This is sleep for our bodies. Our souls go to the presence of God. But our bodies wait to be awakened, revived, glorified at the joyous and glorious appearance of the Lord Jesus, all because Jesus died and rose again. There's the third thing we need to understand about this. From this passage, in order to understand the rapture, the third key is the command Christ possesses. The command Christ possesses. The comfort the rapture provides, the confession it's built on, and the command Christ holds. I want to walk through verses 15 and 16 here with you. Okay, Paul is saying all this on the authority of the word of God. He he, he says that in verse uh, 15. This we declare to you by a word from the Lord. Most likely this was like a personal revelation where, where God actually spoke directly to Paul. 
But for us, of course, we have the inspired word of God, so we're reading this from God's word. And so from the inspired word of God, this is, this is talking about kind of what's going to happen. Now, verse 15 says, he says that we who are alive, who are left behind until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So there's going to be a generation of Christians. It could be this generation of Christians. It could be five generations from now. But there's going to be a generation of Christians alive when Jesus returns. So what's going to happen? I mean, you'll have some Christians who have died and gone to heaven. You'll have Christians on earth. I mean, how's all this thing going to, how's this all going to work out? That's what Paul's talking about. Okay, here's what's going to happen according to verse 16. Here's, here's the steps. Here's what's going to happen. Jesus is going to descend from heaven. And he's going to do it with three sounds. Do you notice there? Now we don't know, are these three ways of describing the voice of Jesus? Or are these three distinct sounds? We don't really know. But nonetheless, it's, they're going to, there's going to be some noise. There's going to be some sounds. And so the idea... Uh, the three sounds, it's, it's the cry of command, it's the voice of an archangel, and it's the sound of a trumpet. And so the idea you get with all these sounds is they, they represent a loud cry of victory. The, the cry of command uh, reminds us of when Jesus was at the tomb of Lazarus, doesn't it? John 11, where he says, Lazarus, come forth. Uh, in John chapter 5, verse 28, Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, do not be amazed at this. Notice what he says here. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear my voice and come out. Now, it was late last night when I was reading through my sermon, and maybe because it was late at night and I was tired, but I just had to chuckle at this verse. Because Jesus said, do not be amazed at this. And when I read that, and I've read this tons of times, but don't be amazed at this. People in their graves are going to hear a voice, and millions, and millions of people, with the cry of one command, don't be amazed at this. And I thought, Lord, why shouldn't I be amazed at this? And I think what Jesus is going for here is that it shouldn't surprise, yeah, I, th I think it should cause some sort of awe and worship in us, but I think what Jesus is really getting at is that it shouldn't surprise us that this is what God is going to do, right? God has a plan to bring an end to all death and all suffering. Like his, God's plan is not for Jesus to come, die, rise from the dead, ascend into heaven, and then that's just kind of it, that the world is the way it is and it will be like that forever. Jesus is saying, don't, don't be shocked because there, there can't be any more death. There can't be any bodies left in the grave. There can't be any remnant of death or suffering in the world that God is going to create in the new heaven and new earth. Everything must be restored. And so we have this cry of command. The bodies hear the, the voice of Christ and they come out of the grave. Then we have the, the sound of the archangel. And we only, only one archangel is mentioned by name in the Bible, Michael in Jude chapter 9. Uh, or not Jude chapter 9, Jude chapter 1 verse 9. Uh, but, you know, we don't really know much what this means. But apparently it means that the angels are going to come with Jesus. So there's going to be Jesus in the sky and a bunch of angels. I don't know how many archangels there are. There may be one. There may be more than one. But there's some sort of sense here in which the angels will accompany Jesus in this victory march. The trumpet, which is mentioned here, 
was widely used in Jewish and Roman culture. Uh, it was used to declare war, it was used to commence special festivals, and it was used to announce the arrival of an important ruler or military leader. And so all these sounds, these unique sounds, is what Jesus is going to use to call forth all who have died in Christ. This is miraculous. But there's another miracle that I want to mention here that isn't mentioned in this passage because we could say, well, okay, their bodies come up and they're reunited with, you know, their soul. But what if their body is, you know, not doing to get decayed or, you know, it's got disease. What's going to happen? Because there's another miracle that happens in between the two. In- instantaneous, really, in the twinkling of an eye, we'll read. But when Jesus calls those who died... Uh, died in him from the grave, the bodies are changed. They don't stay the same. They are m- immediately transformed into perfect, glorified bodies. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 and 52. I referenced this earlier, but you'll see it on the screen. Where he says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Again, there's going to be some people alive when Jesus returns. But we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. At the last trumpet, there's the trumpet again. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead, notice what it says, will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. So every dead body that Jesus resurrects is going to be resurrected as an imperishable, perfect, glorified body. It's a miraculous event, and it's all at the command of Jesus Christ. The command he holds. Three sounds, one reason for the rapture. Jesus is going to leave his throne and go pick up his children. And Jesus has command over death in the grave, and nothing will keep Jesus from accomplishing his, pers- uh, his, uh, his purpose. Nothing will keep Jesus from be- bringing his children home to be with him in glorified bodies for all eternity. There's a fourth key to understanding the rapture as we continue through this. Fourth key to understanding the rapture is the communion it secures. Verse 17. Notice, I find it interesting the order in which Paul says things here. Because he understands the context of who he's talking to. And he says in verse 17, okay, so the dead have risen. What about those still on the earth? Well, verse 17, then we who are alive, that generation of Christians who are at their jobs, you know, at home, watching TV, you know, all those who are left, they're going to be caught up together with them, with them. It's like Paul is saying, the, 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 re, the, the reunion is coming. He says we're going to meet them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we'll always be with the Lord. Reunited with loved ones. We will be caught up together with them. This is just, and, and again, the word rapture isn't used in this passage, but that the Greek word for caught up is, is what it means. It means to snatch up. It means to swoop up. It means to rapture, to be caught up. So the dead in Christ will go first, and then that generation of Christians alive during the rapture will be snatched up right behind them. And we will be reunited with our loved ones. And this will, be, this will be the first time in all of history that the full church of God from all time, all places will be together in one spot. 
what death divided on earth will one day be mended by Christ forever. Paul found joy. I mean, we, we read uh, several weeks ago when we were in chapter 2, we looked at verse 19, where Paul says, what is, what is my joy, my, uh, my hope, my joy, my crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? So even Paul found joy in life. He found right now joy, present joy, right now joy in life, in ministry, at the prospect of being reunited with Christians whom he was uh, inevitably separated from on this earth. The one thing that gave Paul encouragement, even though you know, not all the Thessalonians were dead and he wasn't dead, but he understood that there was a division that took place, and one of the things that gave him joy was, I'm going to see you again. There is sorrow in parting with those we love, but there's that joyful expectation held forth in these verses that we will be united with our loved ones, but we'll also be united with Christ. And Jesus promised this would happen. Remember John chapter 14, verses 1 to 3, where Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And guess what? If I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back and take you to myself. That's what this is. This is Jesus saying, hey, it's prepared, it's ready, it's ready for everybody. And he comes back and he takes us to himself. So that where Jesus is, we may be also, and this verse says, we will always, always, always be with him. We will be with Jesus forever. And one of the many things I love about this passage is where this takes place. And I want to draw your attention to where this takes place. Because he says, we'll be caught up together with him in the clouds. And clouds is, is normally associated with uh, apocalyptic events. Psalm 97 and, and of course, uh, uh, on Mount Sinai and Exodus, there's a lot of cloud stuff going on. So often associated with apocalyptic events. But... He says, we're going to be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. I love this. Because in Ephesians chapter 2, the air is referred to as Satan's home turf. He's called the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians chapter 2. And this is the very place that Jesus is going to stand. He's going to stand on Satan's turf. And he's going to call all those that experience the death that Satan, largely responsible for bringing into this world, a, a, man, uh, a being who is a murderer from the beginning, and he's going to stand on his turf, and he's going to call every follower of Jesus to his side. I guess we know who's really in charge And the full joy of heaven will continue on for every believer. And in verse 18, we will forever be with the Lord. I want to do our final one. You're not going to find it in this passage, but certainly one of the things we need to understand, a key to understanding the, the rapture of the church is, is the questions it asks. The questions it begs us to ask. I mean, what's, what's the big deal? Other than something to get really excited about. You know, Paul has men mentioned the parousia, or the coming of Christ in every chapter of 1 Thessalonians, except for chapter 1. And it's 
again, we mentioned this at the beginning, but it's never for the sake of just having information. In chapter 2, verse 19, we looked at this. It was in relation to the affirmation of his ministry. It was what fueled his ministry as he kept on going in this world. It was the fruit of the gospel. In chapter 3, he, he mentions the return of Christ uh, in relation to the holiness that the Thessalonians were to live by. Here in chapter 4, he's mentioning the coming of Jesus in relation to it giving comfort and encouragement in life right now in sorrow. In chapter 5, when it's mentioned, it's mentioned in relation to a call of readiness by the believer and how they live. And this is something not just Paul, but the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10-11. Where Peter is referencing what we're going to get to in chapter 5, but it's worth addressing here. Because Peter says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens are going to pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies are going to be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Notice what he says. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought we you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? So the whole world's going to pass away. And he says, since all these things are going to be dissolved, since this world is going to burn up, what sort of people ought we to be in lives of holiness and godliness? See, this doctrine isn't just a doctrine to be discussed or debated. We've misunderstood it, if that's the case. It's meant to meet us at the ground level of our lives. It's to remind us of how temporal this life is and how temporal the things of this world are. It's to remind us that we aren't the center of the universe. It's to remind us that there is something beyond me and my existence that is far greater, far more satisfying than anything I could ever find in this world. It's to remind me that there is eternal life beyond this world and it's found in the crucified and risen Savior, Jesus Christ. I know a guy where uh, uh, he would always ask, whenever somebody would teach something or say a statement of fact, he would say, okay, well, how does that change my life? And he was constantly asking, how does that change my life? How does that change my life? How does that change my life? He didn't want to just hear a doctrine. He wanted to know, how, did, how does this change my life? Well, let's walk through a couple more questions as we close. I mentioned towards the beginning that Paul was using the gospel to confront the culture. And I think we can ask the question, well, how does the gospel confront our culture? When it comes to death and eternity. Because that's what Paul is doing. Now our culture from the top down is is all about using our time, our money, our resources, our politics, and all of our energy into making this life paradise. We don't like thinking about death. We spend endless dollars on looking young, feeling young, staying young, dressing young, all this stuff. But this doctrine reminds me that this short life isn't worth my ultimate investments. I should invest my time, my money, my energy into the things that will carry on into eternity. Do you? Do I? Do we spend our time, our money, our energy as if there's an eternity coming? I want to ask you if you're ready for Christ's return. And here's what I mean. We could... We could ask, well, if this is for believers, this is the believers in the Lord Jesus, they're resurrected. Well, what about unbelievers, the dead unbelievers? Will they be resurrected? And the answer is yes. But it's not a resurrection like this one. The Bible talks about a resurrection. John chapter 5 speaks of two resurrections. One is a resurrection to life, and that's this one. But the other is a resurrection to judgment, And so when I say, are you ready for the return of Christ, I'm asking when those two resurrections come, and they're coming, 
Will you have the resurrection unto life, or will you be resurrected unto judgment? If there's never been a moment in your life where you placed all your dependence for eternal life and forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ, then your eternal destiny is a place of darkness, suffering, judgment, absence from the presence of God. That's what your sins deserve. That's what my sins deserve. But Jesus died and rose again so that you could be part of this victorious event and not the judgment. And while you live, there is yet time to escape the hopelessness of being separated from Christ. And if you say, I am ready for the return of Christ, Jesus has saved me, I'm a follower of his. What will you be doing when Christ returns? Now, why is the timing hidden from us? It's hidden so that we will live every day as if the Lord is returning. Will you be waiting expectantly for the king? Or you'll be sleeping, checked out, busy doing something else. Jesus is coming soon. May we long for it every moment of our lives. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you're coming soon. What glory awaits us. Lord, in all the sorrow that fills the hearts of people right now, just going back just a few minutes ago to the announcement we made to facing holiday season, yet another or the first holiday season without a loved one. Maybe just so much sorrows and so much building up at work, at school, with friends and in our relationships. It just seems like sorrow upon sorrow. Lord, may we draw this morning our consolation from the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And we, may we eagerly long and love and look forward to the return of Jesus Christ and the rapture of his church. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll have the deacons come up now and those who are serving as we prepare to, uh, to uh, celebrate the Lord's table together. And as they make their way up here, I uh, just want to, uh, just to mention to you that, that when it comes to the resurrection of life, this is not what gets you there. Taking communion, being a church member, getting baptized, that's, that's not what gets you to the resurrection of life. What gets you there is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we do here at this moment is Jesus, Jesus said he didn't give us a whole lot of things necessarily to do as a church. But he did say, when you get together, remember me. And so he says, do this in remembrance of me. He just wants us to take moments as a body to remember that Jesus died and rose again to give us that hope of that victorious resurrection coming one day. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus, this, this really isn't for you, not because of who you are, but just because this is for those who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus. The bread represents the, 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 the lamb without blemish, without uh, any sort of yeast. It was perfect. His perfect life, his perfect body, spotless lamb that was crucified. The juice represents his blood because without the shedding of blood, without Jesus dying, there is no forgiveness of sins. So Paul said that once we come around this table, we're to take time to examine ourselves, confess any known sin, confess, like the psalmist said, our unknown sins, and just rejoice that Jesus died and rose again for us as we partake this together.
So I'll pray, and then as, it's, uh, as this is uh, uh, passed out, take time just to examine yourself, rejoice in the Lord, and then we'll partake it all together um, once we get back. Father, just thank you for this time. Thank you for the life you lived. It was a life we couldn't live, and the death you died, and that's the death we deserve to die, and indeed will, unless we know you as Savior. So we come to this table, Lord, looking expectantly towards the far greater table that we'll have at the marriage supper of the Lamb yet to come. But for now, Lord, we rejoice that you died and rose again for us. In Jesus' name.